Open your Bibles this morning to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 24. This is one of those stories that I probably didn't find in the Bible I was about fourth or fifth grade boy. Uh, preachers don't typically preach this passage for some obvious reasons, uh, but when I was a fourth grade boy, I thought, wow, if, if, if this kind of story is in the Bible, I love the Bible. Uh, so this is dedicated to all the fourth grade boys in the world today. Uh, this is good scripture and a good lesson for us today. Uh, welcome again to all of you. Welcome to those of you in the overflow. God bless you. Next Sunday, I believe, will be the first Sunday that the preaching on Sunday morning begins to go to two campuses. So don't forget that Franklin campus is very, very near launch, and next Sunday will be the first one we, uh, we record for video casting. So let's be in prayer. It's an exciting time for our church. As a matter of fact, there are two things I really want you all to see. Uh, the first is the new sign at the Franklin campus. If you haven't gone up the road and seen that yet, it is a beautiful, beautiful sight to see Woodburn Baptist Church, Franklin campus on that sign. Now listen to me, guys. Uh, I know sometimes you guys are looking for a way to you know, bring the spark back into your marriage, and this is what you do. You take your girl in the car down to the Franklin campus and look at that sign at night. It is beautiful, the, 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 the lovely glow from the sign, your girl will fall in love with you all over again. I did this, guys. I took Casey for ice cream. I took her to the Franklin campus. We saw the glow of the sign. She fell in love with me. If, if our 15-year-old son had not been in the car, something good could have happened, I'm telling you. <laughs> so you go by and you see that sign. Uh, it, it is a neat thing. Freddie Morris has been doing the countdown. What day are we on, Freddie? 24. 24 days, oh my goodness, it makes my heart skip, 24 days uh, till launch. God bless, uh, God bless our church, God bless all of you who are going down to work. In tonight's service, tonight's evening service, I'd like us to gather all of our folks who are planning to make the Franklin campus their ministry and their home. Uh, let's gather tonight, let's, let's lay hands and pray on those Franklin folks uh, or, or those Woodburn folks who are gonna go down to that campus, so uh, how exciting. The other thing I want you to see, and this is, this is just more personal, but I want you to go by the Woodburn Cemetery and look at Emily Long's tombstone. Uh, Teresa Vernon and Chelsea put that in place. Was that last week or so? Uh, it is absolutely magnificent. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. Emily's tombstone has Emily's own handwriting, Emily's own drawing, some of Emily's own sayings right on both sides. If you go in the cemetery, go all the way to the back of the cemetery on the back road, you can look up and see it, but you want to look on both sides. Uh, it, is, it is magnificent. God bless you all, uh, and God bless uh, Emily's soul. I don't know if it's uh, my midlife crisis, which I'm having, or, uh, or whether it is simply preaching so many funerals, but, but I often uh, wonder about the kind of stories that will told about me after I'm gone. I, I wonder what kind of stories people will tell. I asked Casey the question, because I've been wondering, I said, Casey, when I'm gone, what kind of stories will you tell about me? What kind of stories are you all standing in the casket and, and, and remember? She said, oh, probably just all the stupid things you've done that you've told us about. I said, excuse me, like what? She said, oh, nothing, oh, nothing. I don't know. There are lots of stupid stories they can tell and lots of funny stories I know, but I also want to live my life in such a way to leave some great stories. Is there anything wrong with that? I want to live my life in such a way where my son and my grandchildren might one day tell some great stories about me. I'm not sure I've lived those stories yet, but that's how I want to live Especially as I look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, this is one of those stories they can tell about David and one of those stories they can tell about Saul. But honestly, it's a very different story for these two men because honestly, their lives took very different turns. 
Let's take a look at this story from the life of David and think about the story they'll tell about you one day. 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, again, every fourth grade boy in the house, listen up. This is pretty good. 1 Samuel chapter 24. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. Now stop. Remember, Saul is the king of Israel. David is the young man growing up in, in, the, in the nation of Israel. But at this point, Saul hates David. He despises him, and he has made it his focus, his, his life, to go and kill David. And so Saul is the king. All of the armies of Israel are coming up now against David and his little ragtag group of men. So this is where we are now, verse 2. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. Fourth grade boys, y'all hear that? Y'all see what he's doing? Y'all got a picture here? Uh, once you see it, you can never unsee it. It's in your head. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. Then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. The Lord knows I shouldn't have done that to my lord the king, he said to his men. The Lord forbid that I should do this to my lord the king and attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, My lord, the king! When Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then David shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It's a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I'm not trying to harm you and that I've not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the, Lord's will, the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me. But I will never harm you. As that old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds. So you can be sure I'll never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a, or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate, and he will rescue me from your power. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is that really you, my son David? And then he began to cry. You ever had one of those difficult people in your lives? You ever had one of those? You ever had more than one? Actually, some of you right now in this house, you could be sitting next to your difficult person. Listen, I don't want to, let's don't embarrass them, but if you're sitting next to your difficult person, just kind of signal me like this. Let me know. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I see those hands. I, I see those hands. Yeah. It's no joke, is it? My 
goodness. We can have very, very difficult, difficult people in our lives, and it's, and it's hard sometimes to understand why. Why do we always seem to have that, that person? Why is there always that same kind of person? Maybe you're like that. Maybe in your life you feel like you keep coming up against that same kind of person that is just sandpaper to you, a sandpaper kind of person. They always rub you the wrong way. Do you have people like that in your life? Maybe it's somebody in your family. It could be somebody you work with. Maybe somebody in this church. But that person just absolutely gets under your skin. Do you have people like that? I know I have in my life. It's frustrating because it's those people, the, the difficult people, that bring all the bad stuff out of me. And it's frustrating. Ordinarily, I'm a very patient, gentle, friendly man. But you put that difficult person in my path, and all of a sudden this ugly stuff, ugly stuff starts happening. They, they make it happen. They bring it out of me. Have you had anybody like that in your life? My goodness. It, it's that person, and I just I, I lose all my patience, and it's bound to be her it's that person who makes me angry. I just cannot possibly understand how to deal with the difficult people. I don't understand why in their presence I can't be happy. In their presence, because of what they do, I can't forgive. But because of them, I get angry. But because of those people, I just can't be the man I think I want to be. Well, what is it with the difficult people? Let's be real honest. Let's just be real honest. If you have a difficult person in your life... You have a tremendous opportunity to examine yourself. You have an opportunity to examine yourself. You're asking, why is it around this person? Why is it around my boss? Or why is it this person from my past? Why is it when I have to look at him, all of a sudden this anger comes out of me? Why is that? Why is it when I have to look at her, all of a sudden this bitterness just comes out of me? Why is it that all this comes out of me in the presence of this difficult person? I can tell you why. Want to know why that anger comes out of you sometimes? You want to know why sometimes that, that inability to forgive just comes up? You want to know why that comes out of you? It's not the other person's fault. It's not the difficult person's fault. That comes out of you because it's in you. It comes out of you because it's in you. It's not the difficult person who puts it there. That's what's in you. I don't know if this is a rule. I can't show it to you in the Bible. But I have this hunch that for the most part, God brings the people into our lives that we need. He brings the people into our lives that we need. If you never had a difficult person in your life, you would never have an opportunity truly to love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you never had a person who tests your patience, you would never learn patience. Read the list of the fruit of the Spirit in the Bible and you'll find that all of those are relational qualities. Love, joy, peace, patience. All of those are qualities that can only be expressed and lived out in relationship with people. So honestly, I think we have difficult people in our lives. I think for the most part, the difficult people in our lives are there for a purpose. It's to help us to learn to be more like Christ. Help us to learn to practice patience and, and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control and forgiveness, all those good things. If you never had a difficult person, those qualities would never be nurtured in you. I, I begin this way so that you can remember that for David, Saul was the difficult person in his life for well over 16 years. Over 16 years, as best we can count in Scripture, 
David's life was made absolutely miserable by the man Saul. Miserable. Absolutely miserable. It's Saul who is spoken of so often in the Psalms that David wrote, although David never names him. When David says, God, you've got to deliver me from my enemies, he's talking about Saul. God, you know all of those like dogs who circle up around me to devour my flesh. He's talking about Saul. Saul was the enemy. Saul was the difficult person in David's life for all of those years. But understand something. It was this relationship with Saul. It was this process of running from Saul and appealing to Saul. It was this process of keeping his own heart pure while he wrestled with the the dark heart of Saul. It's this long process that God uses to help David become the king. It's the long process of wrestling with the relationship with Saul that helps David have this heart fastened within him that is later called, he's called a man after God's own heart. David's heart is shaped in relationship with this man Saul, who you have to recognize is some kind of maniac. He was the difficult person in David's life. It wasn't always that way, though. I mean, when we meet the two men here in this cave at En Gedi, it's obvious that they're enemies. It's obvious what has happened. But if you'd look back a few years ago, you would have never seen it turning out this way. You remember the story? You know how Saul was chosen by God to be Israel's first king? Saul was God's first choice. Don't forget that. Chosen because he was tall. Chosen because God could see what was inside of Saul. And obviously God chose Saul to do something wonderful and important for the world and for the nation. God chose Saul. He was the king. Saul began to rule. But there was this young man. He was the eighth son of some redneck farmer on the back side of the country. It was that eighth son named David who suddenly began to rise. And obviously God's hand was on David. If you've ever grown up in a small town, if you've ever grown up in the same community, then you understand something of how the relationship of David and Saul kind of evolves. Saul's the old man in town. David is one of those young men that just grows up right under Saul's nose. And it's some time before Saul ever actually meets David. But in the beginning, he's got to love him. Everybody loved David. David was an amazing, amazing young man. Remember this story? How David could play the harp. How David could wrestle bears and lions as, as a shepherd for his daddy. You know the stories about David? I'm not exactly sure when they first met. We know that there was some point when when the army was in battle against the Philistines and there was that great champion whose name was Goliath. Goliath stepped out and nobody would fight Goliath. And this is when first people began to see David. Now remember, Goliath was a giant, but Saul himself was the tallest man in all of Israel. We know that. So there's this expectation that Saul, the king, the, the mighty warrior, the leader of the army in battle, Saul should go fight Goliath. But Saul didn't go. He wouldn't go. It took David to to come off the backside of the farm, David to come down, to come down to the battle just delivering sandwiches to his brothers. That's all he was doing. But when he sees Goliath, David says, I'll fight him. I'll fight him. Before he gets to fight Goliath, as you recall, Saul takes him into his chamber. The king brings the boy in to give him some final battle instructions. And Saul lays his big armor on the shoulders of that little boy and says, go get him. Remember that story? 
David kills Goliath. It's an amazing victory, an amazing moment. And from that, that time on, David is very, very powerful in the eyes of the people. He becomes this celebrity hero in the eyes of Israel. As David began to continue growing and as this mighty warrior and this very faithful son of his country and faithful servant of the king, David becomes very, very popular. They start playing this song on the radio, something about how Saul had killed a lot of people, but David killed a whole lot more people. I didn't make that up. It's in the Bible. They're singing that song. All the girls were singing the song. I mean, David was the Zac Efron of his day in the nation. All of the girls had David posters in their bedroom. They used to have Saul posters, but they took them all down. Now they were all about David. And Saul started to see that. And Saul started to be bothered by that. He wrestled with that. There was a time when Saul became very, very tortured with some sort of emotional, some sort of uh, mental illness, some sort of mental problem. We don't know the nature of it. But Saul would become so anxious, so angry, so depressed. He would be in his chamber, and the only thing that would help at one point was when that young boy David would come in and just play music for him on his harp. He would play and, and sing the psalms. And that was the only thing that would calm Saul. It's a complicated relationship. One of those afternoons when Saul was so uh, down into the pit of depression and anxiety and anger. Uh, Saul was sitting there listening to David play and David was serving the king and David was singing and only trying to help. But that was the day when Saul got up and, and grabbed a spear and tried to stab David. He was going to kill him right there in his bedroom as he played music for him. Saul became unhinged. Saul became deranged. He became absolutely obsessed with hatred for David. But Saul was difficult because he would go back and forth. One moment he's hating him, the next moment he'd be crying, begging for forgiveness, promising to make everything different. Remember, David was the very best friend of Jonathan, Saul's son. It's so complicated. Their lives are tied together in so many ways. But there comes a point when they become absolute enemies Saul despises David and is determined to kill him. What is it about Saul? What has it that's made his heart turn so dark, so cold? What is it? Remember, God chose Saul. Saul was God's first choice to be king. God chose Saul not because of what Saul turned out to be, but because of what God knew that Saul could be. Saul's is a life of wasted opportunities. Saul's is a life of ruined potential. And that's why he despises David. He looks at David and he sees everything that he's supposed to be. He looks at David and sees everything that God had put once in him. But Saul would not follow God. Saul would not submit to God. Saul would not trust God. Saul rejects God and therefore God must reject Saul. David's going to be the next king. So Saul's determined to kill him. Which brings us to En Gedi on this very, very interesting day. It's a place of, a, of high cliffs, a deep valley, lots and lots of enormous caves. Some of them winding through the cliffs, joining up in secret caverns. It's an amazing, amazing place. 
David is, is there with his men, just a small group of men, kind of a, a Robin Hood kind of group. These are guys that nobody wants, guys that, that nobody in the kingdom cares about. They're coming now to David. They are the friends of the poor. They're the servants of the dispossessed. David's becoming that kind of figure, a folk hero in the land. Saul has his thousands, his mighty armies, all with one focus, to go kill David. And they find out where he is, and so the hunt is on. One day, they're in En Gedi, and Saul and his men take a break, and Saul decides to go up into one of these caves. He finds one that looks, you know, kind of nice, out of the way, where he can have some privacy. He goes up to use the bathroom. He goes up to relieve himself, as the scripture says. This is really funny if it weren't so tragic. He goes up to use the bathroom, but out of all the hundreds of caves he could pick, he goes up and squats right in front of David. He goes up and squats right in the cave where David is. And what do David's men say? Well, first off, they all pulled out their camera phones. You know, you can't let a moment like this go by. You understand? I mean, they pull out their camera phones first, and then they say, David, this is a God thing. Can you imagine the coincidence of the king who's trying to kill you coming in here and going to the bathroom? David, he is a sitting duck. Go get him. This is a God thing. God has put him into your hands. This is the most delicious thing we've ever seen. David, go get him. Do you understand? This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity. And David leaves his men And begins to crawl towards Saul. At that moment, no one would know what he would do. At that moment, everybody assumes he's going to go and kill Saul. But that's not what he does. David's men watch David crawl off in quietness. And then David comes back. And all David did was kind of slide up behind Saul and cut the elastic waistband off his underwear. Do you understand? That's all he did. He cut the elastic waistband off his skivvies and he brings them back. And that's all he did. And the men said, what are you thinking? God put him in your hands. It was an opportunity. Do you understand that? Life is full of opportunities. Saul has wasted all of his opportunities, but David's is a life now full of opportunity. And in your life, seeing and realizing the opportunity will always be one of your most important tasks. In your life, just like David, you've got to be able to see opportunity and to see opportunity with clarity. And this is what David does extremely well. Because this is an opportunity. The men and everybody else would assume this is an opportunity to kill Saul. This is an opportunity for revenge. This is an opportunity to make a name for yourself. This is an opportunity you can't let pass by. Go finish him off. David sees another kind of opportunity. Do you see that? Because for David, at this point in his life, every opportunity is an opportunity to do good. Every opportunity is an opportunity to do good. I would say the same thing is true in your life. Every opportunity, every decision, every moment is a moment where you can choose to do good. David chooses to show mercy. Almost nobody would do that. But the problem is for us, often in these moments of opportunity, we don't have clarity We tend to make our choices. We tend to live our lives out of emotion. 
And so in these sorts of situations, in these sorts of decision-making, life-changing sort of opportunities, we tend to make the wrong choice. We tend to choose out of emotion. We follow our heart or we follow the logic of our thinking. But this isn't David. He has absolute clarity. He goes forward to take advantage of the opportunity, but then he realizes this is God's anointed. Saul is our king, and it was God's choice to make him king, and I am not in the position to remove God's king. You understand how he thinks? He stops and realizes that what he's about to do is contrary to God's own principles, to God's word, to God's law. And David is a man who at this point in his life lives with the kind of moral clarity that you and I need a good spoonful of. Do you recognize what I'm saying? Every opportunity is an opportunity to do good, an opportunity to choose rightly and to choose well. Oh, I wish we had this kind of clarity. I wish you could sit in my chair sometimes. I wish you could talk to some of the people I talk to, and most of them not even in the church understand that. I wish you understood how frequently somebody will say to me, Brother Tim, pray with me. This is just between you and me, but I've been having this affair with this woman at work, and I'm, I'm really praying about breaking it off. Well, I can help you here, buddy. Quit praying. Break it off. What are you praying about that for? How dumb are you? you got to pray about breaking off an adulterous affair? How very twisted has your mind become? You think you need God's guidance here? Has God not spoken? But this is exactly how we are in our moments. We don't have any clarity. I don't know what kind of emotion, I don't know what kind of deception takes over, but very, very many of us in most of the moments of our lives, we make the wrong choice. We throw our lives away. We waste every opportunity because we will not, we will not simply follow God's ways. Every opportunity is an opportunity to do good. Every opportunity is an opportunity to do what is right. When we tell this story about David, don't ever fail to see this lesson. Every man in that cave recognizes the opportunity But only David sees it as a chance to show mercy. David shows mercy. Right now, this very moment in your life, some of you are at crossroads. Some of you have choices to make. You have opportunities. And I've got to implore you. I've got to beg you. Please understand your opportunity is an opportunity to follow God. It's an opportunity to do what is right. No matter what the cost, no matter the emotional pain, you follow God's ways. You do what is right. It is the only way to have God bless your life. Every opportunity is an opportunity to do good. But what a story. I mean, what a story. This is a story now that's in the Bible told of David and told of Saul. The action takes place in just a few verses. And again, the action, every fourth grade boy is just God of love. Here is Saul squatting there in the cave. He's probably, you know, flipping through Time Magazine or or whatever, listening to his iPod. I mean, he thinks he's absolutely alone. He is so vulnerable. This is just the best moment. David crawls up. He simply cuts the hem off of his robe and goes back. 
Saul leaves the cave. Once Saul is at a safe distance, David comes at him again to speak. And what does David say? David says, my Lord, the king. David calls him my Lord. He calls him the king. He calls him father. David appeals to Saul and says, you're listening to the wrong people. Anybody who's telling you that I'm trying to kill you, don't you understand? If I wanted to kill you, you'd be dead right now. If I wanted to kill you, I would have killed you instead of just taking the toilet paper. Do you understand? I could have done anything I wanted to do. Evil people do evil deeds, but I have not done evil toward you today. So who's the evil man? David stands there in all of his integrity, with all of his courage, saying, My Lord, the King, Father, please pay attention to what's happening here. I'm not trying to harm you. You're trying to kill me. What an amazing man. I would hope one day that this kind of story could be told of me. I'd like to do like David. I would like to choose to do what's right, even when the wrong thing would be such a delicious thing to do. I would always like to think that I'll choose to do what is right. I'd like to be the kind of person like David who relates to people not as they are, but for as it could be for the better. This is David stepping out and calling Saul names like my Lord and King and Father. Let's just be honest, if it had been you coming out of the cave after Saul, you would have called Saul some names, but we wouldn't be able to say them in church. It would have been wonderful to call Saul a few names. He's trying to kill David. But David, after all of these years of fleeing and running and crying and praying, he stands there before Saul and says, my Lord, my Father, my King, can you do that? Because if you can do that, I'm telling you, the whole story of your life will be different from the story told about most people. Most people don't look into others and see them for what they could be or for what they should be. Most people look into the hearts of others and they see the person that they see or the person they used to know. And people don't ever forget that stuff, do they? They look at you and they judge you for your very worst day, your very worst moment. I've had some horrible days in my life. I've done some horrible things as a pastor. Please don't judge me for the worst things I've ever done. God wants to raise up people who will look at others and see them not for what they are, but for what they could be, for the better. This is how God looks at us. This is how all the people who've ever lifted you up and impacted your life, this is the quality that they had that was so rare. They were able to look at you and see you for what you could become for God. This is what David can still do looking at Saul. Can you do that? Can you look at a person and forget the bad that they've done and still hope for the good they might yet do? Could you look at a man, an enemy like Saul, and say for the life of me, I will never harm you, though you may kill me. I'll never do anything against you because that's not the person I'm ever going to be. Can you be that person? That's who David was. That's the kind of stories they get to tell about David. David is this man who recognizes that everything comes to him from God as a gift. Everything comes to him from God as a gift. It's a wonderful way to live. It is the only way to live because I'm telling you, everything good in your life comes from God as a gift to you. When you realize that in your life, then it's very, very freeing. 
You don't have to live your life grasping for things. You don't have to live your life trying to promote yourself. God will promote you if you need a promotion. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you realize that God is in control and God holds your life and God wants to bless your life, then all of a sudden you get to live this life of tremendous trust and freedom. And this is what David has. It's why David does not have this incredible need to punish Saul, to get vengeance, to get revenge. He doesn't have to do that because he knows that one day if there's revenge to be had, who will have revenge? God will have revenge. David recognizes that God is the judge between him and Saul. So David doesn't even get into the business of judging. David just says, I'm going to be the man I I feel called to be. I'm going to follow God. And Saul, you're obviously going to do what you're going to do. But listen to me, Saul. God's going to judge between us. I'll never harm you. But God one day is going to harm whichever one of us is in the wrong. It's an amazing ability to leave it in God's hands. Can you do that? Because if you can do that, you can stand like David in any situation, in any circumstance, before any person on earth. You can stand right there with a full heart, with a full life, a life of opportunity, a life of blessing. You can stand there as a man or woman after God's own heart when you can be like David. Saul was different. Saul was different. He doesn't stand there at that cave that day as a, as, a, as a full man, as a man with a full heart, as a man blessed by God. When David speaks those words and waves a waistband from his underwear before his eyes, what does Saul do? Immediately he begins to cry. He cries uncontrollably. Why does he weep? Because in that moment, he sees his life for what it is, and it's wasted. See, Saul's one of those guys who never learned to trust God. David trusts God. Saul doesn't. Saul has always believed that if it was going to happen, it was going to be up to him. But Saul was a man who lacked strength. Saul was a man who lacked courage. Saul was a man who was not full in himself, and none of us are full in ourselves. That's why we need the Lord. God chose Saul because of what God saw in Saul, but Saul was never able to see it in himself, and therefore Saul never trusted God, and therefore God could never use Saul. But because Saul could never trust God, because God, Saul could never believe that God really just wanted to bless him and use him and make him great, because Saul could never trust God, Saul in his years got to the point where he could trust nobody. I hope you understand what I'm telling you. If you can't trust God, then I pity you because that means in your life you don't trust anybody. Trust begins with trusting your heavenly Father. Trust begins with trusting the God who loves you and wants to bless you. And if you won't trust God, you can't trust anybody. I feel sorry for you. Because like Saul, that means that you always have to be suspicious If you're sitting at a lunch table at school and the kids at the next table all begin to laugh, the first thing in your head is, they're laughing at me. They're laughing at me. My goodness, is that how your brain works? You walk into work and two people are talking, and when you walk up, they stop talking. They're talking about me. 
Oh, it's a horrible way to live. Always suspicious, always in fear, never trusting anyone. Don't you understand? This is the trap that eventually defeats Saul. And it goes all the way back to his inability, his unwillingness to trust God. You learn to trust God and you will be able to trust others. They go together. But if you won't trust God, you are doomed to living a life of suspicion and fear and paranoia. What's the old hymn say? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. No way to be happy if you can't trust and obey. Saul could never, ever trust. One more thing about the story we tell about Saul. Saul was not willing to cooperate with God in his life. Saul would not cooperate with God, and therefore Saul collides with God. If you will not cooperate with God in your life, you're going to collide with God. And listen to me, it's the truest thing I can possibly tell you. When your life collides with God, it's your life that's going to be flattened. Do you understand what I'm telling you? When your life collides with God, it's your life that's going to be flattened. You are much, much too small to challenge God. Your arm is too short to wrestle with God. Don't you understand what I'm telling you? If you will not cooperate with God, you are going to collide with God, and you're going to be destroyed. This is the story we tell of Saul, who would not follow God's ways, who would not be the king that God had chosen him to be, who would not show mercy and grace toward David. Saul would not, and therefore he collides with God and in the end is destroyed. His story is a tragedy. His life is sad. His whole reputation tarnished, forgotten. In that moment when David steps out with his courage and his purity, his integrity, All Saul can do is look at him and weep. He sees his life for what it is. And this is the story that for Saul pretty much sums up what his life's been worth. I don't know if it's my midlife crisis. I don't know if it's the funerals I preach. But but I think a lot about the stories that will be told about me one day. Do you ever think about that? What kind of story will they tell about you one day? Let's just, if your life were to stop right now, what stories are there to be told about you? What will they say? What stories will they tell about you one day? Will you be that high school girl that gets pregnant at 17, has a drop out of school, raises babies, and never ever finds a way to serve God? Is that going to be your story? You'll be that young man that played football and began drinking on the team, and he drank and he drank, and then before long he drank when there wasn't a party, and then he's drinking every morning, and before long he's absolutely, his life revolves around the bottle, and it becomes a story about addiction and not a life of sports and, and victory and good things. It's a life of addiction. Is that the kind of story that's going to be told about you? You're the man who can't walk past the computer without accessing pornography or some sort of gambling site. Is this the story that will be told of you? You'll be the woman who abandoned her family to run off with the guy from work. Is this the story to be told of you? My friend, you have opportunity now. You have choices to make, choices every single day. And every choice you face, every opportunity you're given, is an opportunity to do good 
It's an opportunity to put your life into the hands of the Father who loves you and wants only to bless you. Will you trust him? I'm asking you to trust him. I'm asking you to live your life in such a way where you always can say that you've done the right thing and that you've pleased God. And though sometimes it was to your own hurt, you were always willing to do what you believe to be the right thing. Is that going to be the story we tell about you? Pray with me. God, the greatest story ever told is the story of a God who loved the world so much he gave his only son to come and die for the sins of all of us that we might have everlasting life. That's the great story. The story of Jesus, Lord, that is the great story. The story of the one who came down and lived a perfect, sinless life. The story of the one who did no wrong to anyone and yet was crucified for all of us. That's the great story. God, the story told of all of us is always going to be a story of sin and failure. It's always going to be a story, Lord, of how we knew to do one thing but always have chosen to do the other, Lord. That's always going to be our story, Lord. We are sinners, But Jesus, somehow, we want to find ourselves, Jesus, in your story. We want to find our lives somehow in the story of the cross and in the story of grace and forgiveness. We want to find, Lord, the mess of our lives somehow taken up in a story of grace and new beginnings, in a story, Lord, of what you can do with the life that is put completely in your hands. God, we've blown it. We've all blown it. But today, Lord, you offer us the opportunity to make a new choice, the opportunity to turn a corner and live a different kind of life. Jesus, that's what we want. So, Lord Jesus, we ask you today, by your grace and your power, rewrite our stories Rewrite the way our story ends, Lord. Rewrite the way the story of our families, Lord. Rewrite the story of our life at work. Rewrite the story, Lord, of our lives, our our mental lives, our lives of addiction, Lord. Rewrite the story of our lives that our story, Lord, might somehow reflect the goodness and glory, the story of Christ. Oh, Jesus, let your story become our story today. And forever, we pray in your holy and powerful name. Amen.